0: Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends, feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, Teenage Head has a new documentary out. We'll give you a preview. Canada has hit the 10,000 mark when it comes to deaths from COVID-19. How significant is that number? The Bank of Canada says it is keeping the interest rate right where it is, and we will not fully recover from the pandemic until the end of 2022. And the trial for the man behind the Toronto van attack back in 2018 will take place starting next month by video conference. What kind of challenges does that present? It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast.
1: Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML.
2: I'm Alicia Thompson, Scott's daughter. It's a beautiful day. Make the most of it and spread the joy by asking someone how they are doing. It's the Scott Thompson Home Show. Here's Scott Thompson.
0: Can you close the doors? Thank you, honey. There you go. A positivity. <laughs> he just says, this is too positive. <laughs> no, it's good. That's what we needed. Way to go, girly. I love it. Uh, beautiful day outside. Some fall colors still up there. Uh, all of a sudden, I'm sounding like my parents. Uh, good afternoon. It is 1211 It's 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Will Erskine, back at the station, keeping the Scott Thompson Home Show on the air, as he's done for uh, so many weeks now, I can't even remember. Uh, feel free to jump into the conversation. There's so many ways to do that. Through social media, you'll find the podcast at of the commentary there, uh, talking about political leaders uh, confusing the public by challenging science. Feel free to weigh in on that. Uh, Coming up November 3rd, TVO, uh a great documentary on the story of teenage head uh picture my face it's uh i've just uh, been watching the the trailer the commercial for it and the three minute trailer it is uh, so exciting just to even see that uh very cool the way they've done this let's bring in dave rave uh, from teenage head and he is with us now dave thanks for the time i hope you're doing well
3: Hey, Scott, thank you for having us on, you know. Man, it's an honor to be here on your show. Thank you.
0: It- uh, I'm gonna play a real uh, quick clip here from, from Gordon Lewis. This was on with Scott Radley the other night talking about yes. his impression of seeing this doc for the first time. Go ahead.
3: Okay. I really
4: like
5: some of the footage. I really like the older footage. I like seeing Frank, like, uh, doing this thing. Um, cause all I did was, I played guitar. So I never saw all these crazy things that Frank did. To see them in film is a real treat for me.
0: All right, that's Gordy Lewis talking with Scott yeah. Radley about viewing the doc. Your thoughts when you first saw this, Dave?
3: It's amazing. You know what? Because it's such a. What do you realize about Teenage Head? Is it? It. it it's was well, it's such an exciting. It's, it's an exciting band musically, and it's also. Um, it, it, it uh, brings people together. It's, it's that kind of music. So to see it all put into one story, it's amazing. It's also really the story of Hamilton, too. You really realize that, you know?
0: So your thoughts. Tell everybody about your role in this band over the years, coming in and out and subbing for Frankie. What was that like? Tell us about how that all even came about.
3: Well, you know what? It, I have to I'll be honest. It comes right back to Gordon and I going back to, to, uh, to grade one. So really, in, in knowing Steve in grade eight, and, uh, you know, and knowing Frank from grade nine. So it really was not really much thinking about it, because we uh, we all were connected as friends. Like, you know, Frank, and Frank used to play drums, I would sing, you know, me and Frank sang in the studio together, like harmonies and stuff like that. Uh, Gord had me as a as a second guitar player at times, I would join them in the studio. And, uh, so it really was just a natural thing. And then it was almost natural when, uh, to, to ask me to join the band as a, as a second guitar player in the 80s and as a background singer, because I was doing it anyhow, uh, already. You know, we were, we were tight together, all of us. So it's really, I call it like, we were, we were, it was a Westdale connection. It was our, it was our family. Uh, so i 've never really thought of it as anything more than that so i 'd got to watch Frank and also play beside him and also have to take his role so i've i 've done. I'm in a unique position i 've done all three all three <laughs> scenarios uh you know and I, I, lo- I love the guys we 're all you know we we, we are we 're brothers and you so four years ago when Steve asked me to rejoin the band after i when I returned from, uh, when I was in new York. It just seems so natural. It didn't. It didn't seem like any, any, any big. Uh, it just it like re, rejoining. It's like a family reunion. Just getting right back home. You know.
0: How difficult is it? That being said, obviously tight friends before all this, yeah. part of the band before all of this. Yeah. But what's it like? Oh man, what's it like when you've got to replace the front man? I mean, and and not only that, Frankie Venom is quite a yeah. front man. What, what's that like? Well, in, in the eighties, it was harder. Because we didn't
3: have the social media now and Frank was alive and he left the band. So a lot of people were wondering why would you leave this band, Frank? And, uh, so it was a little harder at the beginning when uh, the first three months. So you have to take your own personality on. It, it is, it's not easy. <laughs> Let's put it that way. <laughs> not, not easy at all, but it's a great challenge too. And I love the challenge and I love the music. So I thought, I just thought, Bring the music to the people, because that's what ultimately everybody really wants. And that's what I did then, in the, in the mid-80s, and I did it in, now, in the last four years, you know. Because I, I, in a lot of ways, i got to make Evie and Gord and, you know, and now Gene applaud proud and, and present this music to, to an audience. So that's the key. It's, it's really hard, but in the long run, if you, if you focus on the right things, which is the music, it, it, the music will, will guide you. Do you see what I'm saying?
0: Well, you do a phenomenal job of it, Dave, well, that's for sure. You. If anybody else could have done it, it's only you. Uh, because it's very, very difficult to lose a front man and then continue yeah. with the band. Uh, but again, you've got it down. How did this whole doc come about? How did the whole documentary thing start?
3: Well, you know what? I, when I first rejoined the band like about four years ago, Steve, Steve introduced me to uh, the people, Douglas from the Felt Film. And I remember sitting around, and I think Douglas... Said you know what, teenage head's story has to be told. It's 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 one of the most Canadian, important Canadian stories, and it's not just a Canadian story. It's a worldwide story because I know that for myself. I've toured the world in the last 30 years since I'm, I when I went to New York '89. i yeah, I, I, I even in Russia. You know, I remember playing there and somebody caught me with a teenage head album, going, "Hey man, can you sign it?" Unbelievable, oh, wow. Italy. Wow. So it's an. He said it's an, It's a Canadian story first. Well, it's a Hamilton story first. Canadian story second, and an international story third. So we have to do it. And then when I saw his, the way he he res- respected the boys in the band and, and the story he wanted to tell, I thought we're in good hands with this with Douglas because he's. He cares. He cares about us. He cares about Gordy. He wants Gordy to tell the real story. He didn't want to do a white whitewash story. He well, and that's to what the was real, interesting the real about deal, this. The real deal. You know? Yeah,
0: and that's what was fascinating about this, Dave. It just wasn't all about the music. It was about the emotion of losing Frankie and, and what Gordy went through. And, yeah. and, and, and and I would imagine uh, anyone who, who struggles with depression is going to yeah. get something out of this.
3: Yeah, yeah. Well, you know what? It's real life. And real life, like, the thing is, is that we see the facade. You know, you're on stage, you're playing, and and everybody's having a real great time. But underneath that is real life. And Gord's a real living human being. So is Steve. So is myself. You know, we all... you know, I still drive by Frank's house every once in a while, you know, and see, and I go, oh, how you doing, brother? You know what I mean? Mm, it, yeah. it, 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 actually, my spine is tingling now as I'm talking about this to you, Scott. Like, that's how I feel it's, it. It's, it's, it's real life and it's honest. And I think that's why people always like Teenage Head's music is it's real life and honest. It, it never pretended to be, you know, anything but what it is, you know, uh, you know, picture my face. Somebody uh, you know, um you know, uh uh, you know, let's shake, let's have a you know, a drink a beer, you know, let's let's you know, let's mm. it's just real it's what people, what people really do in real life, you know? And and stand is real life. So you're gonna see a real life documentary. Warts and all.
0: The story of teenage head, picture my face. Uh, Dave Rave's been joining us, and of course, November third on TBO. Set your PBR now; you do not want to miss it. Uh, even the trailer is fine tingling, as Dave says. Dave, thank you so much for the time; much appreciated. Our best to all the members of the band, and uh, good luck with this documentary.
3: Scott, to be on your show is an, an honor, and I, I know you because I know you really reach real Hamilton, and uh, and so to, thank you for including us on your show
1: and telling our story. Thank you.
0: You know what? I think I'm going to call you back after I watch this, because I want to get your reaction. Uh, Dave, yeah, thanks yeah, for the thank time. You. Be well.
1: You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML.
0: All right. A new Ipsos poll says that liberals are en route for a majority. Uh, and uh, as we know, uh, a confidence vote happened last week and uh, we avoided one. The majority of Canadians say they do not uh, want a election. That being said, we've certainly seen them across the province, or across the country provincially, and success to the incumbent has usually been the, uh, result. Here is, uh, Global's Brianna Carnegie talking about the poll.
5: If an election were held tomorrow, the federal Liberals would receive 38% of the decided vote. That's up two points since the government's throne speech and Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's televised address in September. Erin O'Toole's Conservatives now sit six points back. Last week, Canadians avoided a snap election when Parliament voted against creating a special committee to probe the government's ethics and pandemic spending. But one in three respondents believe an election is looming and predict it could happen in the spring. If so, more Canadians would blame Trudeau and the Liberals than they would for any of the other parties individually. Brianna Carnegie, Global News.
0: All right, let's bring in Tim Powers, Vice Chairman, Summa Strategies, Managing Director at Abacus Data. He is with us now. Tim, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well.
2: I'm all right, Scott. What a well-spoken young daughter you have there. She should be hosting the show, shouldn't she?
0: Boy, I'm all for that. It's a beautiful day. I could get a last round of golf in. Do you think I can make it happen right now? Will you help her through this? You know, be gentle with her. Uh,
2: she uh, doesn't anyway. need any help out of it. And by the way, didn't we not determine, I think it's week 33 this week, isn't it?
0: Yes, it is. And you're the only one saying that on this show, I just so you know that. And that's fine. We'll, you can carry that, torch. Okay. all right? Uh, okay, so uh, obviously people are feeling fatigued. I found interesting in that report from uh, Brianna Carnegie that if there was an election today, although the uh, Liberals would have a majority, um, uh, uh, the, uh, a good portion of Canadians would blame the Liberals for triggering that, which I thought was quite insightful for the, for the Canadian public. No?
2: Uh, well I guess uh, yes, it, 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 it is indeed the case I mean certainly the argument the liberals were making last week was oh we don't really want this but our confidence is being challenged but the opposition doesn't have to do this so we don't need this election so I again I'd, lo- I'd love to know what specific question Ipsos asked um, but yeah that's a bit surprising that and that'll be concerned to the liberals because they do want an election which I'm starting to think they do they're not going to want to wear the, oh, we triggered it. Not that that has lasting impacts, but you still wouldn't like to start with having to defend your opportunism.
0: Uh, obviously, uh, the Liberals uh, reclaimed two uh, by-election seats in Toronto, uh, however, not by as as steep a margin. Does, is that telling in any way?
2: No. <laughs> How's yeah. that for uh, uh, a uh well, There only about a dozen
0: people that voted, wasn't there?
2: Well, look. Everybody tries to read so much into by-elections as a mean yeah. for the future. They usually don't mean much at all. I mean, there's some spin. You know, oh, the Liberal numbers dropped a bit. Well, yeah, it's a by-election. I, I haven't seen a by-election that's told us what the future is going to be like. So uh, that that is my take on that
0: all right uh, here we are uh, as you said in week 33 of this pandemic oh my goodness how did that slip out and and obviously people are fatigued uh, leaders uh, right across the country are struggling to uh, to keep people engaged during the long haul uh, obviously uh, the prime minister doing incredibly well with the first part of his pandemic response and in the polls are obviously uh, reflecting that how does it, now it, it appears that people are, 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 are... Everybody is recognizing the fatigue. The Prime Minister said yesterday uh, that all you know, the pandemic sucks. It's, it's you Really? We're here. God, really? <laughs> well, really I, I, can't, I, I thought, yeah, that's a statement that could have come about six months earlier. But that being said, uh, the first part, very well. But it doesn't seem that we have a, a plan for the second half of this. And I think people are feeling fatigued because there's no timeline out of it. There's no plan. And we know, you and I both know by the middle of next year by the time a vaccine is available and starts moving things are going to change so we've got about another six months of this so why not come up with a plan to take us from here to Christmas uh, which is obviously hunkering down and we've got to get through the 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 cold part of the winter and then once you're after Christmas what's going to take us from there to a vaccine and then once we get to the vaccine uh, how is it going to be be distributed and and how do we recover the co- the economy moving forward? If Canadians and of course there's a ton of uncertainty in all of that, but at least if Canadians had a vision of where we are trying to go, and we can see the light at the end of this tunnel, even though it appears right now we can't do you think if we if government laid out some sort of timeline to get us from here to christmas and then from christmas to the vaccine and then the vaccine to a recovery plan that the canadians might feel a little bit more uh less negative i don't even want to see, uh, say optimistic but certainly less fatigued like like we're just swamped here
2: i I, but I yeah if if i think everybody knew what they were dealing with i mean i think the government's trying to lower expectations, and usually when they do that, that means they're hoping they try and exceed them. So yesterday, and it really sucked kind of press conference that the Prime Minister had, he was trying to make the point that oh Christmas could now be in jeopardy and part of that, of course, was to condition people to stop gathering and the like. but it also may be a bit of a setup that oh well, my goodness, the numbers might improve by that time and if they do, lo and behold, that's because of us, then people will be excited. So I, I think they're cautious to try and throw out an obvious plan and are trying to damper expectations as opposed to rise or have them raised because raising them is fraught with risk as we've seen so far. I mean, it was only, what, two weeks ago, it was Dr. Williams in Ontario was suggesting we were near a plateau. And then the last, what was it, uh, Monday, we had our highest number of cases ever in Ontario
0: so Are you there? Uh, oh. yes I'm here yep yep so uh, I, I, that... I lulled you to sleep with my wisdom is that what it was Scott? <laughs> no, it wasn't that I thought you were going to continue um uh, the, the obviously as I mentioned before the plan uh from from the beginning of this until now has, has it's taken a, a certain uh... A, a certain direction uh... can the prime minister keep going in that same direction through the second half of this much like someone who runs for an election the first time the the campaign's going to be different the second time than it is the first because times are different so can he use the same sort of mantra uh... going uh... you know coming down the curve and 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 going into a, a recovery as he did at the beginning of all of this
2: well if he wants to trigger an election which again seems to be more of the case i think his mantra is going to be look uh... he he'll wait to that obvious ray of uh, well well there's some more optimism maybe he waits and and sees if there's a break in all of this uh... and and goes that way but he's also going to want to be the, the the person who says uh, doesn't take the check away from you he's written you lots of checks at some point somebody's gotta cancel these checks so i think the prime minister is going to try and play to have an election while there's still money going out the door there might be some positive news down the horizon. He doesn't want to necessarily have an election when the the election, when the pandemic is fully over and people are talking about costs and the like.
0: All right. So obviously this latest polling shows the numbers for uh, the liberals quite strong and, and, uh, and, and on the uptick, what does that say about Aaron O'Toole and his launch? Uh,
2: I don't know. I think it's more a reflection of the pandemic. Obviously, he never got the boost that sometimes you get after leadership conventions, but because of the pandemic, there wasn't really a a leadership convention. Uh, He's held steady, uh, but it's a sign, certainly, if he's going to beat Justin Trudeau, there's still a lot of work to be done. And right now, as you pointed out with the recent examples we've had with the three provincial elections, probably because of the pandemic, incumbent governments at least get a bigger benefit of the doubt than they would in another time. So otoole has got some challenges to deal with there. A lot of them aren't by his making, but he's got to find a way to cut through that
0: uh you you just said uh saskatchewan obviously new brunswick and uh british columbia successful in running their own uh, uh provincial elections the incumbent uh obviously the victor in those situations that being said is it different with ontario and quebec being uh, such a large population and having such a great impact on a federal election is it different considering where those two provinces are in the pandemic right now
2: Could be, but there was another poll earlier this week by Leger, uh, and in their poll, I think it was over 50% as it related to both provinces that they were, um, you know, they wanted the government to stay in place and they didn't want an election until 2023. You, if you're the liberals, you're reading that as they're also comfortable with us and, and what we're doing. So, yeah, certainly there's more variables, uh, than, um, than in the other provinces, but, I still think right now incumbent governments have an advantage because, one, they're spending money, two, they control the airwaves, and three, it's harder to have a discussion beyond the pandemic. And most people aren't yet in the phase where they're critiquing in great detail what went wrong and what went right. They're just trying to survive.
0: Are politicians becoming fatigued with this situation? (laughs) Uh, We had a a situation here uh, in Halton where, uh, a couple of the mayors and, and some MPPs were pushing back on Doug Ford when last week numbers were climbing, and he suggested that Durham and Halton may be going into a modified stage two, uh, and uh, obviously with some lobbying that changed. Uh, that being said, this initial information, from what I understand, was coming from their own medical officers of health who had put in restrictions just prior to all of this. So, uh, are we starting to see the political gamesmanship here? And and you know, as people become fatigued, they're playing both sides of the fence.
3: Oh, yeah.
2: I look. Politicians are no different than anybody else, right? They're they're tired. They're frustrated. Um, they're trying to continuously motivate people and at the same time respond to constituents i mean I, i'm with the tr- the gym owners and the strippers in the baron at All coalition i'm calling it hmm. now scott that <laughs> keep those some of some of those places open where's the evidence there more the gyms and the strippers but yeah there's frustration everywhere i mean today in ottawa our hopes are getting brought up a little bit or we're getting brought up a little bit because there's some suggestion we might come out of modified stage two in a couple of weeks because generally we've done better than Peel and York and Toronto in keeping our numbers steady. Uh, and that that's also come about because the city council here said, uh, 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 give us the information, give us the data to prove we need to close restaurants. So that's a combination of lobbying and good public health management practice that are influencing uh, what may happen here in a week or two.
0: All right. uh, Last question. Bank of Canada, uh, Governor, uh, speaking today and taking questions and and such, keeping bank rates uh, obviously where they are for the time being and and certainly for the future, immediate future at this point, saying that uh, recovery probably won't happen until 2022. And they're looking towards 2023 before, you know, possibly being to the point where they can consider uh, 2 percent inflation and even raising rates. What does that say? What does what message does that send to government and to citizens.
2: the caution that, that it's going to be slow? I think we're all hearing it's going to be slow. You laid it out well when you talked about the vaccine. It, there may be vaccines that work come December, but good luck as an average person who's not a healthcare worker or a vulnerable person getting a vaccine until, you know, maybe May. Uh, so they just want every... They're, they're trying to build expectations around patients from everything to the economy to how we... Conduct our day-to-day lives. That's that's the gameplay.
0: Tim Powers has been with us, Vice Chairman Summa Strategies, Managing Director of Abacus Data. Tim, as always, thank you so much for the time. Be well.
1: Take care, my friend. Bye. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML.
0: All right, the governor of the Bank of Canada uh, spoke earlier on this morning, keeping interest rates stable and giving us a uh, long-term outlook and can't see really rates going up until uh, past 2022. Here is a clip of what the Bank of Canada governor had to say. Our main message
3: today is that it will take quite some time for the economy to fully recover from the COVID-19 pandemic. And the Bank of Canada will keep providing monetary
4: policy stimulus to support the recovery right through the recovery.
0: All right, let's bring in Ian Lee, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University. He is with us now. Ian, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well.
4: Yes, uh, thanks very much, Scott.
0: So uh, any surprises from the Bank of Canada governor today? I mean, with the pandemic the way that it is, that everything is pretty much status quo?
4: I I wasn't surprised. I mean, I went through the actual so-called monetary policy report, which sounds very boring and very complex, and it isn't. It's just simply why they don't use the ordinary English, I don't know, but it's basically their economic outlook, their economic forecast. But because central bankers don't like to do forecasts, they say, we don't do forecasts, so they do outlooks, which is the same thing. And uh, so there's some very nice graphs in there. And because uh, I'm a big graph guy, because it, it's a picture paints a thousand words. And the graphs are showing what I think we knew intuitively, that large parts of the economy have recovered. But there's parts of the economy that have not recovered. That's why the numbers are so um, contradictory and why you have some people saying, oh, my God, I'm on the edge of bankruptcy. And then you see you go to the parking lot at Home Depot or Rona or, or Lowe's and they're just filled with people. And uh, and it's uh, not a contradiction. Um, There are some people doing very well. Some sectors of the economy are doing well. You won't hear that in the media because you you will get the impression that everybody's unemployed and everybody's in very bad shape. The numbers simply don't show that. Um, In fact, I went to the statscan unemployment numbers, which, of course, the Bank of Canada looks at and relies on, and we're up to back to 18.5 million Canadians working, actually at work being paid. Now, the unemployment rate is there's a million eight. So there's one million eight hundred thousand people who are out of work and they're being supported by whatever you want to call it, CERB, EI, whatever you want to call it, and other programs. So yes, are they are they hurting? Oh absolutely. But because the one point eight million are hurting, and some of them are hurting very badly, does not mean that the eighteen million, eighteen and a half million who are working are suffering at all. In fact the savings you can look at other metrics. People say you can't rely completely on stats. Well, yeah, you can. The savings rate is up very dramatically. People are putting more money in the bank. Well, if they were so broke that they couldn't afford to save money, they wouldn't be saving more. But there's lots of Canadians who are saving a lot more. Although, again, the, the people that have lost their jobs probably are not those people.
0: So what has done well, what has not?
4: The um, They actually produced some, uh, I thought, some very nice graphs that actually showed... That very thing, which is the 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 parts of the economy that are are doing well and the parts that are not doing well, and there's really five. It's easier to talk about the parts that aren't doing well, um, and I can just rhyme them on It's oil and gas, uh, accommodation, food, bars, restaurants, entertainment, recreation, uh, and that's about it. They're they're really they really got hit oil and gas, natural resources really got hit, accommodation got hit, food as we all know, the bars, the restaurants, the gyms, uh, entertainment, you know, the Stratford Festival, not just rock and roll concerts, but theater, live theater, the Ottawa Little Theater is closed here in Ottawa and across the country. Um, um, e- entertainment writ large and the recreation. You know, you're going to, um, I can't go to the, we have a marvelous athletic center at my university. In fact, multiple buildings, swimming pools and nautilus centers and tracks to go and jog on. Every building is locked down just tight because of the, the lockdown by the by Premier Ford. We got caught up, pick, uh, caught up in the lockdown when they did the partial lockdown. So these parts, it's about 10% of GDP, by the way. So we're in this 90-10 economy where 90% of the economy is doing very well, thank you, back to normal. Back to normal meaning they're back to their salary if they even lost it, because not everybody lost their paycheck in the beginning. I mean, in the public sector, none of us got laid off. We didn't get suspended. We didn't lose our paychecks. And I am in the broader public sector in education. Same with healthcare. Same with governments. But, but there's 10%, roughly 10% of GDP of the economy that's really getting hammered and they're the ones we hear about, of course.
0: Uh, latest uh, survey: uh, One in three fear that they will not recover from uh, financially from the pandemic. Forty-two percent say that if, the, if we go into a second wave, that's as big as the first. Now, that being said, the second wave, third wave, what have you, uh, appear to be more targeted, and they're not. Sh- it won't be a blanket shutdown. But forty-two percent said they couldn't handle uh, a second wave. Your thoughts on those numbers?
4: I'm I'm I don't want you to think at all I'm being insensitive okay uh, at all uh, because I'm very sensitive to people who've lost their jobs but I see these studies year in and year out you know uh, and you know 50% of Canadians in past studies say they live pay to paycheck to paycheck but then when you that's why I look at the numbers because you know people could be in a bad mood that day or just be depressed about their general situation in life they can't buy a new car you know yet you know things like that and so they say how do you feel financially oh I'm just terrible 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 shape you know You look at the numbers, one of the first things I look at is how many of us are working. Well, 18.5 million. And of that 18.5 million, 15 million of the 18.5 million are working full-time. Now, maybe we're not making as much as we would like to make, but we're working, okay? And we are one of the highest, um, one of the uh, most affluent countries in the world, if you want to do it comparatively. We're on the same level as Germany. So where I'm going with this, where I'm going with this, Scott, is first off, yes, there are people. are in very very bad shape i don't believe it's one in three uh when i look at the uh balance sheet there's a much bunch of different stats look at the balance, the so-called household balance sheet which is all the assets of all the individuals in canada not corporations not governments and then you take the debt off that well we've got 13 trillion in aggregate in gross assets us us people we the people and we owe two trillion. You hear about that number all the time. people say, "Oh my goodness, we're just doomed because we owe two trillion." Well, we have 13 trillion in, in gross assets. minus the two trillion in debt means we have 11 trillion net worth, which per person is 300,000 dollars. Now, I, young people, when I say this, they say, "What are you talking about? I'm not worth 300?" No, you're not. It's older people that are worth a lot more than 300,000. And it, okay, half of that is real estate, but real estate is real. It, 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 just because you throw the word it's real estate doesn't mean it doesn't, isn't valuable. People that sell their house know that, but it's very valuable. So what I'm trying to say is, when you look at the stats, it's not a third of people who are in desperate situation. It's lower than, the poverty line, if you want to use that metric, is 8.8% of Canadians are below 22,000 a year, uh, for a single person, which is what StatsCan has calculated as the poverty line. So, yes, there's people suffering in Canada. There's people that need help in Canada. So I'm not denying that. I'm just saying I don't think it's a third of the population.
0: Let's talk about individual industries here. Uh, we've certainly heard a lot of the from the fitness industry in the last week yeah. or so. Businesses, even politicians, are starting to question. Or uh, you know, we had an interesting situation in Halton here, where uh, a couple of the mayors and politicians uh, were were upset that the the premier was talking about possibly moving Durham and and Halton region back into a modified version of stage two when the numbers were really starting. To climb last week. They have since uh, leveled off a little bit, and and those closures uh, did not happen. So we're starting to see the political fatigue. As yeah. well as uh, the, the fatigue that citizens are going through, something like gyms. Um, and again, this is going on in both Quebec and, and Ontario. Is yeah. this is this a model? Is this something that we have to be judging these on an individual basis? And some are able to do this safely. Some are not. Where do you take this particular industry? Which obviously, you know, it, it's not like a restaurant. These are health. Clubs. These are yep. a lot of yep. people need this to manage their stress and anxiety. Yep. So, uh, how do you balance this?
3: I, I
4: think you're asking the single most important question. Uh, I was very critical in March. I, I thought we were doing the sledgehammer approach. Yep. You know, we're just going to lock everybody down except for, for the
0: like yes.
4: hospitals. And, you know, that's truly using a sledgehammer to kill a fly. And I say a fly because the whole population was not COVID infected. We know that. And I argued even in March, I knew there wasn't going to be millions dying, not because I'm a medical doctor, but because I can read and count. And we knew it of China, which has 1.3 billion people, way bigger than Canada, humongously bigger than Canada. They had 6,000 deaths. Okay, people say don't trust the Chinese, they lie.
5: Okay, multiply that by
0: 10. Yeah, but so they didn't they do death. that, Ian? But, Ian, didn't they do that by really quickly just shutting everything down and keeping it locked down for a period it, of time to did. the point but where people I'm, couldn't move from place to place? Scott,
4: you're right. They did. And I'm not trying to say the situation was identical. What I'm trying to say is that those – and there were people who were drawing analogies to the Spanish flu, saying, you know, maybe even a third of the totality of the population were going to die. It was so contagious. And I'm saying – If it's that contagious, it doesn't matter what the authorities do, the Chinese would have had massively higher in the millions and millions and millions of people. They didn't. What that told me was that, yes, it's obviously terrible to the people that get it, but it wasn't going to be the mass um, event like the Spanish flu where over 100 million people died at a time when the world was vastly smaller in 1918. It was only 2 billion, not the 7.7 billion it is today. So my point where I'm trying to go at this is it called, and there were there were actual medical doctors making this argument at the time. Not very many, but some, including Professor Streak at the University of Bonn. And he said it calls for a surgical targeted solution to find out where the risk is and focusing on that. And there was a story yesterday in The Globe by the, leading, the, the top medical um, uh, journalist uh, in The Globe. He's won all kinds of awards. And he said, point blank, we know... What the risk is, it's these large uh, events, super spreader events, weddings, funerals, people in enclosed, uh, poorly ventilated buildings. In other words, it's not shopping. It's 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 not grocery stores. It's not gymnasia. The data is becoming crystal clear in country after country. So instead of going after the super spreaders, which increasingly are very clearly large events in private homes, or in an Airbnb, as was reported today in the paper, where a bunch of people get together. These are the super spreader events that are high risk, weddings, uh, funerals, uh, celebrations, parties. It's not the business community, but I think it's easier to go after business. And so politicians feel really pressured to show that they're, quote, doing something. So they say, okay, we're going to crack down on the gyms and the bars and the restaurants, even though the stats are showing it's not coming from there. It's coming from these super spreader events. And I urge everyone to read that article on The Globe today it, by this doctor talking about where the risk is. And it's these what he calls super spreader events. And they're one-off events. They're not companies or chains of companies or chains of stores. They're single large events of people getting together, such as a wedding such as a funeral, such as a party, such as a celebration. That's where these, where the spread is coming from. But you're talking individual people in private homes overwhelmingly, and I'm just guessing that the politicians are a little bit leery about going into private homes and breaking things up like that
0: yeah, knocking on people's doors when there's parties and such. yeah, exactly what is the world doing here then, Ian, because we're all experiencing the second wave. We're all seeing more and more examples of of lockdowns being uh, reinstituted. So what what what's why has the world not learned what you're speaking of?
4: We become, and I believe me, I talk about this every day with my students. I talk about it with my family and, and friends of and family. I think we become so frightened by it, even though when you look at the hard data, which I do, and I don't mean, no disrespect, but I don't mean hard data from journalists. I look at the data for the Center for Disease Control, which is the agency in the U.S., run by thousands and thousands of scientists. They published the numbers. They published the hospitalization rate, they published the infection rate, they published the mortality rate. And mortality is now 2.8% of all the people that get infected. In plain English, that means out of every 100 people, three people will die and 97 will survive. And that's not counting all the people that were asymptomatic and had COVID, but they didn't even know it and nobody diagnosed them. And so, and when you compare that, and I did, The the CDC has this data. The death rate from influenza, because it's deadly with older people, is 1.5% of all the people who get influenza die from it. So every 100 people, one and a half people die from influenza. The COVID death rate is 2.8. So I'm not trying to say it's not deadly. For the people who get it, who are elderly, and the stats show that it's overwhelmingly older people, CDC has it broken down by age cohort. And below 50 your chances of dying from from uh, COVID is, is almost zero. It's incredible. But you get into your 60s and your 70s and your 80s, and it is truly deadly. It is really deadly. So we have to recognize that and say, look, we've got to focus like crazy on the riskiest people, which are the older people, you know, my generation and up. I'm, I'm in that category, by the way. And they're the ones who are at risk, they're the one we've got to really focus, of course, on the long-term homes. But it's not just the long-term homes. It's really everybody over that age. And the, and the stats from Central for Disease Control are showing this, and they're mirroring, duplicating, if you will, the, the European statistics, the same thing. This is overwhelmingly affecting older people disproportionately, massively disproportionately. So I'm not trivializing it. I'm trying to say that this does not affect everyone equally and and so we've got to you know keep that in mind when we develop these these policies so uh, you know social distancing absolutely essential masks absolutely essential uh, but you know beyond that i think that the government should be more careful in shutting down especially those firms in, in such as gyms where they're taking all kinds of precautions to start with and you're separating them out unlike a restaurant or a bar well a bar is more difficult because you're you know you're literally there shoulder to shoulder but in a gymnasium you're not shoulder to shoulder you know you're working you can set the machines you know two meters apart it's quite easy i'm saying that as somebody who goes to the carlton gym <laughs> you know
3: it is
0: easy that being said there was a situation here in hamilton with spinco where you know a, a, a lot tested positive and then you know they told two friends and then they told two friends in my good. Goodness, it was amazing how how it spread there and and I'm guessing that's the example people are using and, and many said that yep. that facility was doing everything right
4: yeah yeah it, it there there's going to be I mean we're going we're facing a trade-off there's no question that we're yeah. facing a trade-off we are not anyone who says well we're gonna you know keep doing this until we can eradicate every last infection well we're not going to we're going to have to live with it, and, and I mean live with it intelligently in the sense, yes, masks everywhere, yes, social distancing, uh, yes, banning on large events, yes, banning sports events, even though that hurts me because I'm a big football fan. Nope, that means banning uh, uh, hockey games, people going to hockey games and basketball games and all those sports where you're indoors, shoulder to shoulder. So there are things like that that are obviously super spreader events, at least I think it's obvious, and they're going to be banned. So there's things we can do, but what I'm arguing against is uh, a larger lockdown, which some people are still advocating that we go back to a universal lockdown. I don't think we can uh, afford it financially to the the economy, and I think it's also producing devastating consequences, and we see that by the pushback by uh, businesses and, for that matter, by individuals. Who are saying this is too much. And so we're really running in now into civil disobedience. Because that's what it is. If large numbers refuse to obey it, then you really are running into a situation of
3: civil disobedience.
0: You're talking about uh, that in everybody feeling fatigued. It seems that we're, you know, in the end of the summer, we were sort of coming out of this. And now all of a sudden we're hit with a second wave. We're seeing numbers go back up. When really, at the end of the day, there is an end in sight. It just seems that we're not. We're not visualizing that. We're not seeing that. In the end uh, meaning or the beginning of the end is the middle of next year when all of a sudden a vaccine okay. becomes available and things will start to change. Won't happen overnight, but things will That's start right. to change. And, and first, so first, why first, are politicians? Don't. why are politicians not taking us to that date? Like they've spent all the I, first time taking care of us and giving us money and doing all these things, which is great, which is what is needed. But now I think what we need is a plan to take us from here to Christmas and then from Christmas to I the agree. vaccination and I then agree. the vaccination, how it gets distributed and And then the road to recovery. If we saw some sort of timeline, some sort of map to get us out of this, of which there is an exit, I think we would feel better about this. I I do
4: believe that. Uh, But to answer your question, I think it's it's the nature of our political system, uh, because it is an adversarial system. Um, And uh, the moment the politician, whoever it is, doesn't matter what political party, doesn't do some, you know, hard, strong arm measure, such as, you know, shutting down all the bars and restaurants and gyms, then they know that they're going to be attacked mercilessly uh, by opposition members and by some people in the media. And so for them, it's just easier to say, look, I'll, I'll take the criticism from those businesses that I'm destroying, and I'll just shut them all down to ward off criticism from uh, my, my critics. And it's unfortunate, but the, bet, the rewards to the politician. Are to act on, err on the side of caution like that, but you know, to your larger point, you know, the other thing is the mortality rate is going down as the doctors get better and better. I've seen yeah. doctors interviewed in some of the major hospitals, frontline doctors, and they say, "Listen, we in the last three, four, five months learned more than the last twenty-five years how to deal with infectious diseases," and they say they're getting better and better and better at treating uh, people to get it. So that's uh, and that, and the fact that I think older people have really internalized this information and are staying in more and more because they know they're very much higher risk than a young person so the young people are going around you know going out parties and people say how can they do that well they know they they believe they're not going to die and statistically they're pretty they're, yeah. that's a pretty good judgment and, the and, and that's people the obvious that's in. the
0: obvious difference that's the obvious difference in the first wave to the second wave and uh, you know I've still got the the numbers from the, my very first show at home here and the cases that were being uh, the new cases were far far lower because there simply wasn't the testing going on, but the death rates were up into the triple digits. Exactly. Now, you know, and a death is a death. My goodness, I don't mean to make light of that, but we're five deaths uh, today with 834 new cases. Exactly. We'd be getting in the triple digits in the early part of this. So, yeah, there, there certainly is so that's truth to news. that.
4: That is good news yeah. in and of yeah. itself. Yeah. You know, and, and people aren't being put onto ventilators uh, anywhere near the same numbers, which, again, is an indicator. It's a proxy for the severity Cause I've, some people have written yeah. me and said, oh, well, yeah, well, okay, we're not dying, but we're just being extremely sick. Well, they're reducing the incidence of being extremely sick. It's not just that they're saving people from dying, that they've brought down the, the, the horror, the lethality, if you will, of yeah. the illness. And they uh, are able now, through a whole bunch of things they're doing... By and large, they're able to treat it much more effectively than they did even three or six months ago. So, again, I'm not trying to trivialize it. I'm just saying that the risk is going down, not up. But you won't hear that from from uh, our elected leaders.
0: Ian Lee, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University. Ian, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. My pleasure, Scott. Thank you.
1: You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML.
0: All right. You remember uh, back in 2018, it was a, uh, a horrific, uh, horrific morning when uh, Alex Manessian, uh took a van and drove up on a Toronto sidewalk and, uh, well, the rest is history, as they say, and and started to commit murder with that van. Uh, trial set to begin uh, the early part of next month to talk more about all of this. Let's bring in uh, Jordan Donich, criminal lawyer, Donich Law, and is with us now. Jordan, thank you for the time. Hope you're doing well. Thank you for having me. Uh, first of all, many will say uh, there's been a confession here. Why do we need to go through all of this?
5: Well, we have to try to understand what the defense is. So the defense here is obviously not going to be it wasn't me. Uh, the defense isn't going to be, I didn't do it. Um, and that would be a poor defense to argue because you're, you're almost certainly going to be convicted. Uh, likely what I suspect the defense will be is, you know, I wasn't in the right state of mind at the time. Perhaps I had some serious underlying mental illness and I didn't understand uh, my actions. And, and because of that, I can't be uh, convicted uh, like somebody else who would uh, have the requisite intent to make those decisions.
0: So, um, obviously, the and as you've reiterated, the judge will focus on the state of mind. Has that changed since this initial arrest? Because it seemed at the beginning, during the confession, he seemed to know quite plainly what was going on.
5: So, there's a difference between knowing what was going on, uh, perhaps at the time of a confession or in a police interrogation, and at the moment. The, these cases almost always come down to expert evidence. And that's likely what we're going to see here is the battle of the experts. Uh, the defense lawyers, I'm sure, uh, will have their own particular person doing uh, or giving an assessment of the accused on the stand uh, as to what his state of mind was at the time. And the Crown's going to have their own experts as well saying, hey, look, uh, notwithstanding what the defense is saying, he knew what he was doing. It took a lot of planning for this. There's evidence of planning. And he's simply trying to argue that perhaps he didn't have the right state of mind to try and get off the offense.
0: What about his past behavior, his past uh, social media links? Obviously, uh, you, there was discussion of uh, belonging to groups that that uh, were against women and such and, and, and sort of had something brewing before all of this. How will that be taken into consideration?
5: So it's important because I think it's going to show a lot of context. So if you, if you go back in the history books and the law textbooks, right, the people that win on cases of essentially, you know, it's called being an automaton, basically or a zombie. They win on them mostly uh, traditionally in, in in sleepwalking context, right? So you have some episode in the middle of the night, and you wake up, you're sleeping, and you you stab someone. Uh, and those are the, the textbook cases in, in this particular area of law. What we have is a little bit different here, right? This isn't something spontaneous. It's not isolated. Um, it involves some planning be- before, and certainly some interest in certain things connected to the event. And the Crown's going to argue that. They're going to say, look, um, OK, even if we, or we don't find you credible that at this time you didn't have intention or you didn't know what you're doing because you've been researching this and you've been planning this and, and you've been looking into these topics for a long period of time. And it's unlikely that that entire span of time you couldn't be responsible for your actions.
0: So, uh, with that sort of social media uh, uh, background there, uh, history uh, of, of his movements and such, and what he's been doing, specifically around incels and, 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 and the whole male dominance thing, uh, can, can he still uh, uh, frequent those sites and be not criminally responsible?
5: I, sure, it's theoretically possible. Um, but then you're going to be arguing, the defense lawyers going to be arguing, look, he knew what he was doing here. He's visiting these sites. He's interested in this. That may on its face not be a crime. It's certainly, I don't think, a crime he's charged with. But at the moment he decided to perhaps, you know, execute on certain decisions he, he, he was planning, um, he, he was not of sane mind there. I mean, I think he's going to have a hard time uh, convincing a jury or a judge that that's, in fact, credible and true. Um, So I think it's going to be looked in context quite a bit. And and at the end of the day, this is so terrible on so many levels, especially in our country. It's something, you know, fortunately, we don't have experience very often. Um, He's going to have certainly a very you know high battle to to prove that, in fact, he didn't know what he was doing. And and it's going to come down to mostly the doctors. Uh, And even if he's successful, that doesn't necessarily mean you just leave prison and go on the street. There's all kinds of other restrictions that happen.
0: I guess the question is here, Jordan, do you, what do you think the chances are of him using that as a defense that uh, he's criminally, he's, he's just not responsible for this?
5: I think he'll use it as a defense, uh, for sure. Um, you, if you look at the video surveillance, uh, and the police did an excellent job with the arrest, I think, if we go back, uh, there was no violence. I mean, the yeah. officer, I think I remember, even turned off the siren on his car. Uh, to do an arrest so the police did an excellent job taking him into custody but it almost appeared as if he was using uh, a pistol right uh, and i believe it was cell phone. so um i mean they're gonna they're gonna look yeah
0: at and at one point well. he, he he sort of uh, made the reference like he was pulling a gun many uh, right. thought that he was trying to get the officer to shoot him
5: right and that, I, that's i think exactly what was happening right he was pulling it out like a pistol hoping to you know I don't know I don't know if you're hoping to get shot I don't know what you're hoping for and that whether that's indicative of mental illness whether it's indicative of like 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 you said perhaps wanting to engage the police we don't know but that's all going to be looked at in context and ultimately the judge or the jury is going to make a decision um, but given the gravity of the offense given the, the loss of life I mean it's going to be a, a very difficult I think case of the a defense to to argue but we have to remember that may be his only defense and that's why they're running it
0: uh i also remember when this uh way back when when this was uh arrest was uh, first announced that they'd also had evidence on his website that he admired others who had done similar actions
5: so that'll all be used if they could prove that and get it into evidence it's going to be used to discredit any argument he has that he wasn't obscene lying because somebody who frequents those sites, somebody who shows an interest in the criminal behavior they're committing, whatever it is, uh, is going to have a harder time convincing people that, that they didn't know what they were doing, because you have a pattern and there's evidence of an interest there. So it's more likely than not, um, that may not be the legal test, but it's more likely certainly in that, conce- in that context that, that, that it was premeditated, planned, uh, and, and, that, and that the person you know, had control over their actions.
0: Um, What about uh, if this does come to, uh, the the, the trial does come to a guilty verdict, that's the end of the story, what would likely his sentence be?
5: So, if there's a guilty verdict, I think the closest case recent in time we can think of is the Bruce MacArthur uh, case in Toronto, Mm -hmm. which was several male victims. Uh, And and likely what you're going to get there is arguments surrounding sentence. Whether it's consecutive, meaning the sentences are stacked one after another, whether they run concurrent, meaning they overlap, uh, parole eligibility, all these types of things. But at the end of the day, it's going to be quite redundant because he's never going to get out of prison if he's convicted and he'll likely never be granted parole. Um, um, so so it, it, they could be moot arguments in the scheme of things, although they probably will be litigated from an academic standpoint, for sure, because consecutive sentences are becoming a bit more common uh, here in Canada.
0: So, obviously, uh, this all happening, this trial happening during a pandemic. Talk about some of the challenges in regard to doing this uh, through video conference and such. Uh, what are the legalities? What are the challenges?
5: So, it's difficult. I mean, I can tell you, uh, I, I was supposed to be in Coburn court this morning at 9, and I'm still on hold. Right. So, it's it's horrible um, for, for defense lawyers, for the Crown, for the judges. Um, so, a trial is just as difficult because... You have all the parties on your screen. And, and one thing I've even noticed from doing them, I mean, the accused, sometimes the witnesses behave differently. They don't behave the same as they would in a normal courtroom. In a courtroom, you know, you have the judge sitting up top. You have the witnesses on the side. You have the officers. You have the crown on one side, the defense on one side. When you mean it by Zoom, it, you know, you're all looking at each other. It's almost like a panel, right? People sometimes mm. I find are overconfident. Because because you just it's almost like a discussion or a panel. So I've noticed that at least uh, uh, personally with respect to how they're conducted. But yeah, it's it's it's, it's not easy. Is the answer, uh, so, and I can't imagine doing a murder trial. I mean, never mind a, a simple trial. Um, and also there's the, also the other factor of uh, you know who's going to be watching this trial. I've had a few people ask us that. We've had clients say, Jordan, we don't want to do it by Zoom because I don't want people watching my trial at home. Mm-hmm. Right, I want mm-hmm. to go to the courthouse. So. I don't know if this is a case where the Zoom link is sent out. I don't know if it's posted online. I have no idea. I think we'll find that out, and it'll certainly be interesting because it's certainly something that hasn't typically happened ever in this country.
0: Easier with this case because we do have a confession? The
5: defense will argue perhaps he was not of same mind when he gave the confession, maybe. Um, or they may argue, yes, there is a confession, but it doesn't change the fact that at the time, He didn't have control over his actions, or at the time, he wasn't of sane mind. So the confession really is redundant, because yes, you're confessing, I did it, doesn't mean you necessarily knew what you were doing at the time of doing it. They could argue, yeah, he's saying he did it after he was in the station and looked at the footage or looked at the television. Um, So I suspect you might have some arguments around there. There's no question he did it. The question is, did he know what he's doing when he did it?
0: So is it harder to, and as, we've, as you mentioned, as the judge has said, uh, has to determine the state of mind here, is it harder to determine the state of mind when you are on that intimate try, uh, sort of video uh, conferencing situation? Or at the end of the day, is this, you know, the experts know what they're doing and it's up to them?
5: You know, it's, it's interesting because you'd have to put yourself in a position as a witness or an accused. Would you rather give your evidence behind a video or would you rather be in a courtroom? And most lawyers want the accused, or the crown wants the accused, or the defendant in the courtroom. When you're examining them, they're more likely to, you know, fold, or they're more likely to tell the truth. Right. Or you're more. It, it's to obviously,
0: it's obviously much more intimidating to be in a courtroom during it's all of this process. Yeah, it's
5: harder to lie. The answer yeah. when you're in the courtroom and you're facing everybody. But, you know, I don't know if it's proven, but I can tell you right now, for example, with kids, and this has been the case for for a long time, if there's a child witness, the Crown can bring an application to have the child testify behind a screen or by video. So it has been possible, but the Crown does it to protect their witnesses, you know, from defense lawyers. And the reason they do that is because it's probably a softer cross-examination right? It, it's less difficult and less invasive on the person testifying. So, so those are all practical factors and decisions that lawyers and Crown attorneys are making. Uh, the accused still, uh, from my understanding, can elect to have a trial in person. It uh, may be different with very complicated trials with mo- multiple parties, but certainly smaller offenses. Uh, we're still going to court.
0: Uh, the judge said that there will be, or they reported that there will only be 10 people in court. Who will actually be in court?
5: So I think those are yeah some of the the rules we're having uh, at this point, but it's really going to only be essential personnel. But a courtroom's already very busy without, you know, any additional people. You mean you have the judge, you have a clerk, maybe three clerks, you have the crown, you have the officer in charge, you have the defense lawyer, you have the client, you know, and that's just a simple trial. So, And that's just to get the courtroom running and operational. You have a reporter. So, so likely it's just going to be essential people uh, that, that are required to to maintain the operations of the, of the court. Something like this is going to have a lot of witnesses. It's going to have a lot of family who are interested, uh, obviously, uh, and, and everyone's going to want information. So, logistically, in the times of COVID, Zoom is probably the best way to run the trial because there's going to be so many people that that want and deserve to to have information.
0: You brought this up a little earlier, Jordan, but uh, uh, let's come back around to this. Uh, you, obviously, this is online. Who gets? Who has the right to see this? Is this available to everybody? Because, in a sense, what you're doing now by doing this online is allowing everybody to participate or certainly watch it.
5: Well, everyone was already allowed to go to a courtroom to watch a case anyways. But here's what ends up happening. You go back to some of the high-profile cases we've had in Toronto, Hamilton, wherever – you run out of space. Yeah. That's what happens. Courtroom gets full, and you know what they do? They open another courtroom next door with a TV. That one gets full. Eventually, there's no more space. People sit in the hall, and those are, all, those are the only people that can watch it because you run out of physical space. Uh, the problem here is, yeah, I mean, you get potentially anyone anywhere in the world tuning in for, you know, I guess, information, for learning, for whatever. And then, of course, is it going to be recorded? is it going to be put on YouTube? Like, where does that start? Yeah. Right. So, so those are all concerns, at least I see potential concerns. And then, and then imagine, you know, forget this case, but imagine somebody who legitimately is innocent, didn't do anything wrong. Uh, perhaps nothing nearly as complex. They go to a trial. It's, re- it's on zoom. It gets recorded. Like how did it, gets posted online. How does he ever get a job? Right. Mm, I mean, yeah. you never, you never get, you're still, you never get a second chance in that scenario. Yeah. It'd be, The fact that uh, you could contain things within a courtroom setting while still being public uh, where someone is presumed innocent, I think, has helped a lot of people in the criminal justice system.
0: Jordan Donich has been with us, criminal lawyer. Donich Law, the trial for the man behind the Toronto van attack back in 2018 will take place starting next month via video conference. Jordan, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Take care, sir. Thank you.